Thank you so much, Dr. Fleming. We're getting excited about going with Dr. Fleming, as some of us are, to let him point out some of these historical sites, but how grateful we are to have his, his insights and to have these few moments each Sunday to help us better understand this text, which we want to live in our lives. Jesus Christ prayed many prayers. He prayed on practically every occasion. He spent days in prayer prior to the beginning of his ministry. We know that he spent all night in prayer prior to selecting his disciples. He prayed for the sick. He prayed for the sorrowing. He prayed for the frightened as he calmed the angry winds and waves of the sea. He prayed over the food, and as Christians, we consecrate all that we receive with our prayers of, of thanksgiving. And now and again, he simply burst out with a doxological prayer. I thank thee, Lord of heaven and earth. Days when his heart would simply run over with gratitude for everything the Heavenly Father had done for his children. But if you stop to consider that there is at least one prayer Jesus could not pray. That prayer which he refused to pray is contained in John's version of Gethsemane. We know from comparing Matthew, Mark, Luke uh, with John that there are several differences. In the other three Gospels, they have this vivid description of Jesus and Gethsemane, when his humanity is all too clearly apparent, praying, as it were, through drops of blood, sweat drops of blood. John mentions the fact that Jesus often camps at a place just across the Kedron Brook, which would have certainly been Gethsemane, but he doesn't tell us about the agony Jesus suffered there. Instead, he puts this moment of, of deep troubling right after the visit of the Greeks, which we considered last week. Now John tells us that this Jesus, who is altogether human as well as divine, that this Jesus acknowledges, now is my soul troubled. Something in the confession of a troubled soul on the part of our Lord should trouble every one of us. What part did my sins play in giving a troubled soul to one who could still even the fury of nature and make it calm? What lingering stain of sin is there within me that caused this matchless man with unsullied life to utter this confession, Now is my soul troubled. After his confession of a troubled soul, he continued with this contemplative prayer, and what shall I say then? Father, save me from this hour? 
following that question contemplated prayer, he answers his own contemplation with a resounding no. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. If Jesus had followed through on that very human contemplation and prayed for God to save him from that hour, from the experience of being cast out of the camp, going to the death of which is a curse, becoming a curse for us, if he had prayed that God would spare him that, and although his soul shrank from it, if he had prayed that prayer, it would have been contrary to the course of his entire life. From the beginning of his life to the end of it, he had been exploited, had made himself available to people, all kinds of people. Indeed, as he was dying on that cursed tree, they jeered him with the truth. They jeered him with lots of untruth, but at least in one instance they said something which in my judgment is absolutely true. They said about this man Jesus as they wagged their heads and spat on him, he saved others, himself he cannot save. It was true. It was not in the composition of Jesus' character to save himself. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came not to be served, but to serve. It was not his nature, the course of his life, to save himself. He was exploited. Even the sick, who should have been most grateful for their healing, exploited him. When he healed the lepers, when he sent them on their way, as they were going to the priest, they were miraculously cleansed. Only one, a Samaritan, a foreigner as it were, returned to give thanks to Jesus. And when he did, Jesus inquired in a plaintive tone, where are the other nine? Where is the thanksgiving? The miracle is not that Jesus healed. The miracle is that he kept on healing. The multitude came to him with clamoring demands, demands so great that from time to time he had to retreat to the bow of a ship, use that as his pulpit, because the crowds would have actually thrust him into the sea. They were always wanting something from him. I wonder how his voice must have sounded when one day he observed to those closest to him that the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. No one came to give. They all came to get even his disciples, those closest to him, chose to use their positions of closeness to gain prestige for themselves in the coming kingdom. For on the way to Jerusalem, oblivious to the cross he was to bear, the disciples James and John said, Lord, remember us when you come into your kingdom and grant that one of us might sit at your left and the other sit at your right. Even the blind had heard what kind of man he was. For when that little company made its way through Jericho, Bartimaeus cried out to him, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Blind Bartimaeus, squatting in his rags beside the road, screamed the name of Jesus. Those closest to him tried to hush him. 
Jesus was on an important mission. They didn't know how important. They didn't know he was on his way to Jerusalem to divide history in half, to change literally the face of the earth forever. They didn't understand that. But they didn't see him having time for that blind man. But Bartimaeus knew that if the rumors he had heard about this man were right, he could be stopped in his tracks by human need whenever and wherever he confronted that need. So he shouted all the more. And of course Jesus stopped and he heard him. He called for him. He healed the man and sent him on his way rejoicing. When our Savior was dying, there was one repentant thief who kept the tradition alive of exploiting the Savior. As he died, he clutched at Jesus, shouting, Don't die yet, Lord, save me. And it was the joy and the privilege of the life of our Lord that he could respond to that need. Indeed, when, he fi- when finally he summarized his life and his mission and his purpose, he chose to do it with the common elements of broken bread and poured out wine. This is what he became for us in his sacrificial death. To put it in the language of baseball, he was a sacrifice. I read a definition of sacrifice the other day. Many of us know that some, a batter who sacrifices, sacrifices someone from first to second or second to third or occasionally to get them home. And then we know that occasionally a, a, a sacrifice fly is lifted that the person on third may come home. A sacrifice Uh, uh, Someone who sacrifices is someone who is willing to be called out to die on the bases in order for someone else to score, to make it home. Jesus became the sacrifice, willing to be cast out, willing to die, as it were, on the tree, on the bases that we might come home. He did this, and he did it with joy in his heart. I know that's hard for us to think about. But when you pause to consider that the most often repeated prayer in the life of Jesus is the prayer he prayed in John. He said, Father, glorify thy name. Use me to bring glory to thyself. Now, he didn't say it always in those words. Sometimes he said, not my will, but thy will be done. But if you'll study his life, you'll see that again and again and again, that's his prayer. That's what he wanted most, to be used of God to bring glory to himself. That's why when he was climbing the hill toward Calvary, bearing his cross, and the women of Jerusalem came shrieking and crying behind him, he turned and pointed to them saying, don't weep for me. He could have said, weep for yourselves, maybe. If you've never found anything in your life so compelling, so important, uh, that you're willing to lay your life down for it, then you've never really lived before. It was the very meat, the essence of Jesus to do the will of his heavenly Father. One biblical writer said, for the joy that was before him, he endured the cross despising the shame, the joy of obeying his Father, 
the joy of doing his will, of completing the purpose for his life. Father, glorify thy name. When he prayed that prayer, heaven answered. And the scripture says, there was a voice from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. It was a different reaction to that voice from heaven. Some said it was he had heard an angel. An angel had spoken to him. Others, the crowd said, it thundered. Just thunder. Just a big noise. Nothing else. There was the belief in that day, and I'm afraid in our day too, there was the belief that God speaking directly to his people was that which is confined to the old days. Perhaps he spoke to Moses, we accept that maybe, or maybe to Samuel who said, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Or maybe to Elijah when he's trying to get away from Jezebel, or maybe one of the friends of Job. But nowadays when someone talks about uh, hearing voices, we wonder about their stability. It's interesting, isn't it, that on the one hand we have those that we worry about their stability and sometimes with good reasons. And then again, there are those who have heard the voice of God and they are the most stable and the most sane people in our society. Well, when the voice of God spoke on this occasion, most of the people said, it thundered. There is an attitude toward the supernatural. There is an attitude toward God that prevents us from advancing one smidgen. I mean, we literally go toward spiritual death because we, do, we have an attitude that will not let us grow. It's the same kind of attitude that we see in the Acts of the Apostles at the miracle of Pentecost. When the disciples have taken to the streets preaching like they've never preached before, and some of the people are amazed, but most of the people mock them, saying, why, they must be drunk. And so the world is divided between those people who stand in awe and are amazed, and, and, and many times that larger company of people who scorn. That's how we deal with the whole concept of the voice from heaven. After all, it was not the kind of thing which they did then. It had been done in the past, but it's not something which we do now. We desperately need that spiritual discernment that enables us to hear God's voice. We need it because, as the late Harold Huff said, while still teaching at Drew Seminary, we have, we have people who have no sense of mission. He said, our civilization is falling apart because of an insufficient number of great believers. Great believers who feel that they have been touched by God. Great believers who have a conviction that enables them, that propels them to make a difference. When Jesus heard that voice from heaven, he had a conviction. Indeed, he had heard that voice earlier. He had heard it at his baptism when God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He had heard it at the transfiguration when, he's, when God again said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to what he says. Please listen to him. And now he hears that voice again, and his tension gives way to certainty. 
And he said this, Now and now is the ruler of this world cast out. Now through me and through my redemptive death, he understood that God was was striking a singular, triumphant blow against all the forces of evil. And of course there is evil in the world. It's like breaking a chicken's neck and the chicken continues to jump. There is still some power there, but Jesus understood that in his death and resurrection, he was, he was overcoming the domain of evil. He knew that. And when he heard that voice, he said, And I, and I, when I am lifted up on that cursed tree, I will draw all men, all persons, unto myself. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus said he was going to draw us? That's the way we like to come to anything significant. No one likes to be driven. I think about those days on the farm when my father would ask me to to transfer some of the hogs from one pasture to another. I remember those that gave me the most trouble. Those were the ones we call the flop-eared hogs. Now, a flop-eared hog is one whose ears go forward instead of going back. And because those ears go uh, forward, they have tunnel vision. They cannot see anything except directly before them. They have no peripheral vision whatsoever. So when an enthusiastic little boy uh, comes behind them and tries to drive them from one pasture to the other, They turn all the way around to see who that creature is, and so they go at right angles. And then when you go up on that side, they turn all the way around that way, and it's the most zigzag course you have ever seen in your life. You're talking about giving you fits, driving you crazy. Just try to drive a flop-eared hog. Finally, my father made it clear to me that I was to take some luscious ears of corn, and I was to shell that corn with a few, dr- uh, few grains here and there and yonder, and those hogs, hungry hogs, would follow me to the ends of the earth. Jesus said, I'm not going to drive you to this discernment. I'm going to draw you to myself and give you this spiritual discernment. The question is, Will we let ourselves be drawn? Are we going to go through life in fits and spurts? Like that man who drove me from the airport not long ago. I thought something was wrong with the van. He had picked up lots of preachers. We were going to a preacher's conference. And he just kept racing the engine of the van. I, I thought to myself, why, if he, if he lets go of that accelerator, it'll probably die. And maybe it has a dead battery and it won't crank again. But when he got us to the hotel or to the church, I saw that the engine idled just fine. The problem was this man had gotten into the pattern of keeping the accelerator about halfway down, racing the engine, and keeping the other foot on the brake. And so we went through town like that. It was the most maddening thing you could ever imagine. And yet I know people who do that. They, they just go in fits and spurts. They, never, they have never learned the exhilaration of being all out for anything. It's kind of like Oilers Day at the Rotary Club last year. One of you invited me. I went for that special day. 
And before we got around to the fun part of meeting all the uh, members of the team, the president called for us to stand up and, and, and say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. Only problem was there wasn't a flag there that day. Looked all over the room, couldn't find a flag. And so finally the president said, oh, well, just pledge allegiance. And we did. We all stood there looking around the room, pledging allegiance. And, and I, it's a horrible thing. I, I see people pledging allegiance. The Lord knows what. They don't have any flag that flies over their life. There is no supreme loyalty to which they give themselves because there has never been any experience with the divine. All of life has been a, a fruitless kind of fits and spurts endeavor. And it, to cap it off, I read the other day where someone is, many people are now saying that retirement marks the culmination of the American dream. Now, I think about retirement. You get bored Wagner's age, you have to think about retirement. <laughs> but I, some days I think about it more than others. But retirement as the culmination of the American dream, especially if that retirement means a disengagement from anything significant and becomes a pandering to one's own desires? Really? I think about that sad experience I had at a truck stop. I was coming back from preaching a revival. It was late. I'd reached that point of tiredness when I knew I'd better get a cup of coffee or I'd be an unsafe driver. I went into this truck stop late at night. I got my coffee. I went over to the cash register to pay for the coffee. And while waiting for her to make change and, and give me my change back, I read this, this very clear written in red notice on the cash register. It was, a, it was a notice to a particular truck driver, the name given and the tag number of the tractor that he was driving. And, and the notice read, call home immediately. You're pulling the wrong trailer. Now, you want to know something sad, and that's to go all of your life and one dark night be brought to the realization that I've been trucking with the wrong trailer all of this journey long. Jesus can save us from that. Jesus teaches us how life is supposed to be lived. Not to pray, Father, save me, but, Father, use me. These are the people who make the difference. Like that man last week who talked to me about his love for this church and his wife's love for it. And he said, I'm, I'm way ahead of you. He said, I'm so excited about what our church is doing, how we want to expand and share this great church with people all over our city. He said, I, 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 I'm a, just a country boy, and the Lord's been good to me. And I want to give back to the Lord what he's given to me. So I'm pledging $500,000 toward the expansion of our church. Just giving back to the Lord what he's given to me. That's what gives life meaning. Remember those stories of Sam Jones? I've told them to you often. His son-in-law preached at my church once and shared them with me. Sam Jones, back up right around the turn of the century, closed a revival once by asking the people to pretend that the kingdom 
is like a locomotive. He said, what part would you like to be? And they said about those old locomotives, one of them raised his hand and said, I'd like to be the wheel and just roll it down the track. And another raised his hand and said, Brother Jones, I'd like to be the whistle. And another raised her hand and said, I'd like to be the cow catcher and just clear the tracks for Jesus. And Brother Jones was afraid his revival had been in vain until one timid soul raised his hand and said, Brother Jones, I'd like to be the coal and just burn up for Jesus. And Brother Jones said, Sisters and brothers, we have too many whistles and wheels in the church now. What we need is more coal. Let's follow that gentleman who said, No, I can't pray that prayer. Father, use me to glorify thy name. Amen. Our closing hymn is that great hymn of commitment and challenge. Are ye able, said the Master. If there is one here who feels that it would be helpful for you to to publicly rededicate your life, to come and pray here at this altar, or to meet with us and let us pray with you, I invite you to come this morning. Or maybe you've been visiting for a time and you say, this is the church where I want to serve my Lord. I invite you to come and join us as we stand to sing our closing hymn. Let us sing the first and the last verses only, please.